Okay, what's up? And this is the Mission Book Club. This is our second book club. I can't believe we're already at number two. Neither can I. Time's, time's flying by. It's just just delightful. So the book we're reading over the last couple of weeks was The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield. And if you read that book and you're tuning in for the Mission Book Club now, chances are you are an artist. And chances are, if you're an artist, you've been struggling with resistance or against resistance. And what we want to talk about today is obviously the book, but we also want to dive into every type of strategy or idea or uh, story that our listeners out there have of fighting and overcoming resistance. Uh, It's something that anybody who wants to become something greater has to face and figure out how to beat. So we want to talk about how can we make this as practical and applicable as possible for everyone listening. And if you are listening via podcast on uh, when we re-air this on the Mission Daily, then hopefully, you know, pause right now, go read the book, come back, or you can just kind of hang around and listen to us talk about War of Art. Yes. Okay. So don't you love formatting? When you try to format a doc, you paste something in there. There used to be a way to paste and remove formatting. That was like a standard thing for a while, but I think a lot of web apps don't have it anymore. You know, and it it actually is a great tie-in to to the War of Art because when you're a creator or a writer or anything like that, there's a multitude of things that are trying to get might, you. Might be trying to stop you. Yeah, that are trying to stop you. Maybe it's formatting. I mean, can you believe that typewriters, the typewriter format that we use was created so that typewriters would not jam as often because it was intentionally slower. The QWERTY? Yeah, format? the QWERTY keyboard. I did not know that. But that's, Wait, really? You didn't know that? No. Oh, this is crazy. So we were actually talking about that. Um, my dad was telling me because he's an older gentleman and grew up on typewriters. And uh, I had known that before. But yeah, the QWERTY keyboard was invented because typewriting got so fast that the keys would start to jam. And so they needed a keyboard that was... Uh, less optimal, so they wouldn't jam as fast, and that's the one we have. It is like the le- it is the most ill designed. It is an intentionally uh, ruinous invention. Um, like yeah, like how many times do you use semicolon? Why is it on your right pinky? No, that's uh, or just like the search bar on the uh, Google Chromebook or no? Oh yeah, I guess that, that came yeah. along at a later time. I mean, I I love my Google Chromebook. <laughs> uh, shout out to Google Chrome for uh, the fact that it's just a delightful piece of art. So, okay, more folks are joining and tuning in. So let's get into the meat of the episode. So resistance, this is Pressfield here. Resistance is the most toxic force on the planet. It is the root of more unhappiness than poverty, disease, and erectile dysfunction. I didn't think we would be saying erectile dysfunction this soon into the book club. Or the um, podcast. Or the podcast. But, you know, you got it. There's a first for everything. And uh, I'm glad I got that out of the way, saying that live on air. So to yield to resistance deforms our spirit. It stunts us and makes us less than we are and we're born to be. If you believe in God, and I do, Pressfield says he does here, you must declare resistance evil, for it prevents us from achieving the life God intended when he endowed each of us with our own unique genius. Genius is a Latin word. The Romans used it to denote inner spirit, holy and inviolable. While, which watches over us, guides us to our calling. A writer writes with his genius, an artist paints with hers. Everyone who creates operates from this sacramental center. It is our soul seat, the vessel that holds our being in potential, our star's beacon, and Polaris. So that is a, a great look at what humanity can be and the goal for humans. So we are designed to create We are creators with our thoughts, our words, our expressions, the technology, the tools we wield. We can use them to create and do good in the world. And anytime we're aspiring to take what is in our imagination and translate it to the page or the written or the spoken word or whatever the case is, we're going to encounter thoughts in our head, other imaginations, fears, worries, and generally we're going to talk about all of them with the phrase resistance Um, in this uh, book, you know, in this book club, that's the best way to sum all those up. We could sum them up as uh, the the forces that try to stop us as evil forces, 
Um, I don't know if it's helpful to view resistance as evil. I think that it's, uh, you know, there are always barriers in between what we want and, you know, how to create it. And I think that uh, though for this conversation, resistance is a great catch-all to just sum up everything that stands in our way. So what, give me the Cliff's Notes version of the War of Art, just to remind everyone yeah. of what it is. Give me like the one minute synopsis of like who Pressfield is, why he wrote this book and what are the... So Stephen Pressfield was a... Uh, yeah, the little fly in the studio. Yeah, little, little uh, fly, friendly fly in the studio. And uh, yeah, you'll notice too that the uh, the table is getting updated. Yeah, for those of you watching the video, for those of you listening on via podcast, just imagine a beautiful wooden table. We're making moves. So Stephen Pressfield was a struggling writer who, throughout his twenties, uh, did a series of different odd jobs trying to make ends meet. And I think even into his thirties, he was still struggling with trying to get something. Um, anything published. So he moved out to LA, finally found a mentor type figure. Um, And Pressfield basically is like all creators. He's trying to figure out how to monetize his creations, which is not easy. And uh, a lot of people think that it's it's easier now. Maybe. Uh, I'm, I'm not so sure. But anyways, he's struggling. He moves to LA. He finds a mentor who is living, uh, this guy is a professional writer who lives down the street from him in his RV, I think. And so in the mornings, Pressfield is going over to him and getting their, uh, their drinking coffee, their BSing, they're, they're talking about writing and everything like that. And that's kind of like how he figures out the path to beat resistance. And so he starts to use that term resistance to sum up all the forces and the self-sabotage and all the things that he's noticed had basically been stopping him for decades. And so now he gets to the point where he's, I think, late 30s, still doesn't have anything published. And eventually when he was, I think, 40, he was able to sell a uh, basically like a B type screenplay. And then he had a, a career in writing B type screenplays for like action stars and, you know, movies and things like that. So like the guy in, I think, Rocky... Is it Rocky Five or something? The Ru- Russian or is that oh, Rocky Drago? Yeah, Rocky Drago. Four. Yeah, so I think that he did the screenplays for like a number of uh, Dragos, like um, when he was going out on his own, his solo oh, movie career. Yeah, yeah, ex- exactly. Right. Yeah, so I'm, I'm pretty sure that's how Pressfield uh, got his start there. And the uh, the point of it is, though, is he kind of figured out like, okay, this is how I struggled with it. This is how I faced this monster that was resistance and. In a way, this book arms us with the language to commiserate and recognize other like artists in the struggle type thing. And it's a way that we can collectively define the problems that we face and then work together to figure out how to overcome them. So that's a good, that's a good summary. So this is pretty great. His list of movies that he wrote. King Kong Lives. Oh, that's right. Above the Law with Steven Seagal. Uh, Free Jack which I don't, I'd never heard of that movie. I'll check it out. Uh, I didn't Ar- know Jack was in jail. Uh, <laughs> Army of One by Dolph Lundgren. Separate Lives, which it looks like, uh, I'll look at that. And then The Legend of Bagger Vance. That's yeah. crazy. I didn't realize that. Yeah, his. Uh, I like his career a lot. And then he's done a number of uh, fiction and historical fiction books. He has a uh, a real admiration for the military. So Pressfield was in the Marines. Uh, he didn't. I did not know that. He either. did not, uh, you know, deploy or, or serve in a con- conflict or anything. But he got in, got out, and really respected the practice that the Marines and a lot of the service branches have of um, enduring uncertainty and struggle and um, just eating crap sandwiches. Like he's yeah. a, he's a big advocate of that for building character. Yeah. By the way, Separate Lives was uh, James Belushi, Linda Hamilton, 1995. That's so funny. So 95, was she coming off of T2 fame? Well, Uh, you know what's really interesting? Quick side note on people like this. The book Save the Cat, who's written by, which I forget his name off the top of my head. Um, But he learned all of that stuff from writing like Stop or My Mom Will Shoot and like some of those movies where I think especially like in the 90s where like everybody was cranking screenplays and tons of movies were being made that a lot of these people like made their hay writing these kind of movies that like I don't think we would say necessarily are, uh, you know, they're not Oscar winning movies or anything like that. Yeah. 
but it's funny that the insights that you got from that, it's not unlike, um, what's her name? We're working for Nickelodeon. Uh, oh yeah. Uh, Susan, um, Collins. Yeah. Like, yeah, sure. Yeah. Susan Collins, same sort of thing who wrote. I think this is like, Hunger this Games. is a great example because there are a lot of creators that are, sh- that ostensibly say they struggle with monetizing their creations, but Pressfield and Susan, Suzanne Collins and, and all these other writers and people who really broke through in a major way, there are commonalities in how they beat resistance. And it all starts with accepting money for your work. So Pressfield's second book is called Turning Pro, which is more of a, uh, a little bit more of a tactical manual. It's like, okay, book one in the war of art, we define the problem, we defined resistance. And now book two, let's get even more tactical with what we can do to overcome resistance. And I think what anyone out there that's listening can do to overcome resistance today is to accept money for your creative project and start to get real feedback. And I mean real feedback from someone who is paying you. It's never been, uh, a lot of people say, oh, it's never been easier to monetize your work. It's never been easier to get found with social media. Uh, That might be true. But what is also true is that it's never been uh, more difficult to avoid distractions, basically. So there are there have never been more distractions at any point in history than there are now. There have never been more technological comforts and ways to live like a king in the Western world, even when you don't have a king's type of income or, or queen's type of income. And because of this, this creates a number of really like serious challenges for creators. And the biggest challenge is honest feedback from the marketplace. So that is what so many people who are listening, because it's easy to, you know, publish something on medium that nobody reads, or it's easy to start a blog again, that no one reads. And you're not going to take something like that as seriously as you would if you are creating either for a client or if you're creating from a standpoint or place like Pressfield was where, oh, thanks. That's a good call. Where you have to, you're, it's like a hunter mentality where you have to eat what you kill and where the market is going to determine, okay, we can use this and we can't use that. Yeah. So, I mean, that was a long way no, 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 to that's like exactly right. establish, you have to have some form of measurement and management for your creative projects where, because otherwise you don't want to go through your whole life having people say like, uh, oh, that's so nice. Or like, you know, that's nice that you have a hobby. That's nice that you are thinking about that next book or like, it's so cool. I'll just, I'll buy a copy to share with friends. Like, no, you want to find a formal relationship, whether it's with an agent or a company or uh, a site that you sign with to write and create. Like the more that you can formalize that and take the more seriously you can take it, I think that that can expedite the uh, process of turning pro in a major way. One of the things we talked about on the mission daily in the past was the idea of creative constraints. Yes. And when you're writing for someone else or you're in a writer's room with a bunch of other people or you're writing someone else's vision of something, right? It's like you kind of got to wade through the yeah, like wade through the deep stuff a little bit. And it's easy to revolt at that. And it's way harder to so you don't want to you definitely don't want to get in the habit of submitting because there are obviously horrible fates that people basically people create miserable lives if they become too good at submitting at finding like the right opportunity or the right time to ally with someone. So this is not a a call to submit or roll over or to, you know, just accept anything and not get paid what you're worth type thing. Uh, but mainly I think this is a call to uh, figure out when and where it makes sense to like form an alliance type thing. I think that viewing those type of creative partnerships as an alliance instead of a well, I'm working for this person or I'm working for the man or I'm working for this corporation and I'm I'm taking money. And if I take money, it's going to pollute or take away from the creative process. And I think that all of that is just just a complete farce that has been invented and perpetuated by a lot of struggling artists. Like Because it's so hard, I think there's this entire subculture of people who really want to say, if you're not getting money directly from, say, your fans on Patreon... It's like, that's the only way to go. Or, you know, the only way to go is to get money from a large corporation or the only way to go is this. And like, 
I think that experimenting with as many approaches as possible is great. Um, but again, the more you can formalize it. But go look at like go look at the guys who created uh or Vince Gilligan who created Breaking Bad. Yeah. You think that that I mean he hadn't. Uh, but you think that that dude didn't wade through years and years and years and years of stuff to get to the point where he got yeah. the blank check. And it was not a blank check. I should say it was definitely <laughs> not a blank check to create the show that he wanted to create in the way that he wanted to create at, with the network that allowed him to do that and all of that stuff. I mean, like there's a lot of things that go into that of like a multi-decade process of yeah. preparing and like getting ready for that opportunity or David yeah. Simon with the wire or any of the people, um, mad men, the guy, I think the guy that sold that was like 42 and he was like, he bounced around like different loans and just bad situations with, yeah. But all of those people like paid their dues. The whole idea of like paying your, your dues is, is, probably overstated in some ways and not not overstated enough yeah. it's just like it is not a prerequisite to pay your dues it is a prerequisite to do really hard work to get experience yeah. to get like the relevant experience and that's yeah. like that's the challenging part because ultimately we have to be the the arbiter of looking at our work we're doing at the company we're at is it a soul-crushing back-breaking job or are we just not finding and teasing out the opportunity there or making it work for us or are we not being proactive enough in spotting the opportunities because it's uh again like that's it's the default mindset where you're always gonna it's gonna be easy to find people to talk with and commiserate with if you think that where you're at is a place that uh sucks or just is devoid of opportunity let's uh uh, yeah let's give some shout outs here um jj said she needs to read the book (laughs) it's all good that's why we're hanging out today uh, hello to Carla, to Brittany, to Angela, Habib, to Michael. Angela said, what's going on, wonderful people? We just want to thank up, everyone. Yeah, thank I'm going through liking the comments. Thank yeah, you so much. Thanks for hanging out with us on a little Thursday evening or Thursday afternoon or depending where you are in the world. Actually, I'll, I'll post that in the chat. Where is everybody? Um, yeah, that would, that would be cool to, to hear. Uh, we're in our studio here in Palo Alto, California in the heart of Silicon Valley, the heart of, well, Oakland's the heart of the Bay Area, but uh, in the heart of Silicon, Silicon Valley for sure. We we wanted to do this book for a bunch of different reasons, the war of art. Obviously we're a media company, we write original works, we create, um, a, we publish a ton of written work. And this is something that either in our own personal lives we've had to deal with, it's something that our writers have had to deal with. And it's something that anyone who's ever wanted to do a creative project like needs to read this book, right? So I want- The struggle's real. Yeah, yeah, the struggle is real. And, uh, you know, Pressfield said, there is an enemy, you are the enemy, resistance will kill you, right? So let's dive deep into the idea of resistance. And if anyone out there wants to post, ooh, Alabama from Stephanie, Um, nice. Friday morning in Australia on Australia from Kaori. I think I think I said that right. Hopefully, uh, Angela's in California. Nice, we're in California, Angela. Um, but let's dive into the idea of resistance. Sure. And I think you know Chad as a writer and as a creator and someone who started the mission um, as a writer, how you kind of take the lessons from Pressfield and use it in your everyday life, and then for. The, every, all of our fans out there and our, our community here on our on our interwebs. If you have ways that you have seen resistance in your creative work, feel free to just post them in the uh, in the chat. So I'm going to share just a personal uh, feeling that I think a lot of people are going to be able to relate with. The biggest one of the one of the things that really helped me to overcome a lot of my own resistance and problems and like. Uh, baggages that I, like I was carrying with me that were stopping me from creating at the level that I wanted to create at was it was just the simple fact that I would forget how I felt after I created or wrote or did the work. I would always forget what that felt like until I was done, until I did. It would be something that like, just like, uh, I don't know if it's just like, actually it's, it's not just like at all, but so just like a lot of addicts are chasing that first high that's never going to be as good as the the first time type thing. It's like as a creator, you are chasing a feeling that is actually like 
very good for you. And in a sense, it's the only way you're going to get relief uh, and actually be able to relax and shed a bunch of anxiety is to create, is to do the work. And I would always forget what that felt like yeah. until you're, you're done. It's the yeah. same thing when we're recording episodes of the story. It's like 11, it's 11 PM at night. It's late. Yeah. And we're not, we've you know already done a full day of like work and putting in all the, uh, you know, the day job, the, you know, the quote unquote day job. And now we're doing like some of the, cre- the creative stuff. And it's so, so hard to get started. And again, like, so Pressfield always talks about how the actual act of writing and, and forcing yourself to get started, that's the real hard part. Yeah. And I think that that is so true. But the reason why it's so true is you're always going to forget what it feels like until you're done. And then all of your problems, it's just like a really good workout. All of your problems are put in perspective after a workout. All, and the same thing with cre- like creativity. All your anxiety is going to be put to the side after you create. So what are some, I got it. And I totally agree. Whenever we do, whenever we record the story podcast, it's the same thing every single time where it's just like anxiety leading up to it. You get through the recording, you finish and you're like, wow, we we created something that's going to reach thousands and thousands and thousands, if not millions of people. And yeah. it's like, it's like clockwork midway through we're laughing. Then three fourths of the way through, we're having a great time and then we're finished and we're like, you know, we're yeah. again, like supercharged, we have energy and everything. And it happens every single time. Uh, and I think that the more we can, um, remind ourselves of that, however possible, and then just get started and block out all of the distractions that we can so we can get that done and get closer to that feeling because the more momentum you build in that regard uh the easier it is so whether it's setting a you know a set time or routine or something like that i'm just like the whole idea of building a habit or a daily schedule where you write at a set time every single day i think that's way overrated i think that ultimately like uh you know modern life is is it's kind of challenging in a lot of ways and you're going to have to figure out how to get time to create however you can. You're not going to be able to uh, lifestyle design your way to finishing your book, finishing your creative project. There are the best writers, the best creators in the world are, many of them are famous for taking breaks and vacations. So one of my favorites, Michael Crichton would be famous for booking a hotel room and not telling anyone where it was at and literally just piecing out and then being gone for like two to three weeks. I get why he did that too, completely. Because as you near completion of creative projects, that's where resistance and the people around you can get especially insidious where this is, we we had like a whole episode we're talking about like the seven signs, you're onto something big. And for creators, you're going to notice that forces and circumstance and fate and acquaintances it seems like at certain points in the creative process, it can definitely feel like they are conspiring against you. A certain portion of that might just be that as a creator, you have especially active imagination. And so that's a trap that like I, I'm guilty of falling into. Um, but then sometimes it's not a trap and it is accurate. And there are plenty of people that are, yeah, might not want you to create. This is something that, and I'll, I'll post this in the chat too, of if anyone's had like creative roadblocks that and I don't want to get that confused with writer's block because we don't use the we don't use that word no because that doesn't exist it's a lie nothing is stopping anyone right now from just starting to write or starting to create there's there's no such thing as writer's block but there are there is resistance sure like and there's there's overwhelm there are real events that happen in your life where you can't do you can't create for like a day or for two days or something you have to focus on other projects um that yeah that's okay i think that giving yourself permission for the real stuff and anytime you can stop beating yourself up in your head as a creator is a win (laughs) so even if that's where it starts is like maybe you're not even creating at first you just start getting in the habit of forgiving yourself and not feeling guilty, not feeling shameful that you haven't done it in a while. I think that removing those type of emotions is the great way to like pave the way towards a small daily action of uh, writing, you know, a single paragraph or just putting together one note card. I think that doing larger creative projects in small chunks is um, anything you can do to make it more accessible or, more believable and kind of like, cause you have to sell yourself on it like every step of the way. So if it's taking a big project and breaking it apart into a bunch of manageable steps where you know that if you write 
one paragraph a day, your screenplay is going to be finished in four months, whatever the case is. Um, I think that's a great strategy. So yeah. What's, what's some examples of like resistance that either Pressfield talks about or that you think are like super prevalent? Uh, so self-sabotage is the biggest one. So I think that like using, um, so I think that food and drinks are the most like obvious ones where it's so easy to, uh, instead of feeling better by creating to just get, and speaking personal experience, like caffeine, get alcohol, get sugar, like that's, uh, or just bread and gluten. Like those basically turn on, um, opiate like receptors in your brain when you have a certain amount of, uh, carbohydrates. And so there are food and drink are always waiting to take you away from the mindset you need to create. Um, and of course you have to eat to live and yeah. you know, dr- drink to live and uh, nothing's wrong with like celebrating. And sometimes like a glass of wine can be a great way to uh, take out the internal critic and the you know internal censorship and uh, put some words to paper. Um, but it can just as easily be an escape and an excuse from creating. So the, the things that you're consuming, food, food and liquids, like that's where most people do it. Yes. Yeah, so, um, I threw some of the other ones in there, procrastination, fear, arrogance, self-doubt, those things. I know for me personally, I think it's how sleepy I am at a given time is the thing that kills my creativity like yeah. far and away. And then the other thing is, and this is what I think, this is just my thought. I think that people people believe writer's block is when you're sitting on your couch or wherever it is that you do your writing and you just sit there and you space out and you don't know what to write. And I think for me, a lot of times that's because I'm not getting out into the world. And we talk about this in episode one of the mission daily about direct experiences. But I think a lot of times, and you know, one, some of the things that are preventing people from having the ideas or from doing those things is just getting out and seeing the world. But at the, at the same point is like, you can't just do that. If you want to actually create the work, you have to sit down and do it. And a lot of times, 90% of the time, you actually physically have to sit down and do it. So yeah. And you have to, you have to get clever too, in terms of like tricking yourself, promising yourself a reward or dangling a carrot. I think that, you know, that can feel people with a conscience. So artists are typically sensitive. If you're like, if you're listening right now, you have some type of sensitivity left you've managed to preserve, whether you want to call it your inner child or uh, you've managed to like save and protect that portion of yourself. And that's so valuable. You should like cherish that. That's that's an incredible accomplishment. That said though, I think you have to be um, really aware that in order to negotiate with that type of personality, you have to figure out the right things to reward yourself with for a small amount of creative effort. Because it's literally that hard. You have to figure out like, okay, if I have, uh, if I'm going to binge on this season or of this, or like go do this, I have to put in some type of work first and then setting like an embarrassingly small way to get started. Um, so a lot of people are like writers are famous for doing like one bad page a day just because it gives them permission to get started. Um, Oh, that's good. And it's like, it goes back to like researcher BJ Fogg from Stanford had the floss one tooth if you want to get started yeah. flossing. So just write one line and then that's a, a great way to start. So just give yourself permission to do an embarrassingly small start. I like this one from Carla. She said, not starting a book idea because someone else wrote a book with a similar concept. Like that is so true. It's like, oh, it's already been done. It has not been done. Yeah. So, I mean, that's a great example. So, uh, Carlos, like I would just propose like, so what book is too similar to the book you want to write? And then what book do you want to write? So if you could share an idea about like, maybe like one or two sentences about the book you want to write. Uh, I think that I've definitely thought that many times. And typically though, when I, um, get better at defining it and then showing it to someone else, that's where you can get an outsider's perspective who is a little bit removed and that type of feedback can be invaluable because the person you show that to or you confide in can say this isn't this isn't like this is like night and day um because as i think creatives we can fall into a trap of thinking like no this is exactly like my work but by the time your work is finished it's going to be so different and it's completely fine to start off doing something that is is derivative there are plenty of uh sites and companies and 
amazing creative uh, careers that were started as fan fiction, that were started as, uh, there's just like these examples abound of people that got started writing like Twilight fan fiction. And now they're like a great, like they're doing their thing as a young adult author or writer. And yeah. Because so it's easier to write, especially with fan fiction is like. You need a creative constraint and it it provides that. Exactly. And like the characters are there, the thought processes are there, and then you can just add in. So it's easier to be like, oh, I could write about that stuff. Yeah. You know, I think that, um, yeah, I think that that's great. And I think. So Carla, like a great example is to uh, maybe get started creating a better version of that book. And then again, like we have the programs that, uh, education instilled in us to treat everything as like, oh my God, I'm gonna get in trouble for plagiarizing. Like I'm gonna get kicked out of school. I'm gonna get blah, blah, blah. Like um, there's a great movie, Finding Forrester, how the guy, he has everybody start with writing, basically copying his existing work to get started. Oh, that's cool. Uh, and then, yeah, it's a, it's a great Sean Connery movie. It's oh, I, fantastic. I, no, I think I've seen the movie yeah. just back in the, another 90s movie. Maybe it's written by Pressfield. <laughs> um, but I was gonna say that I, another great example of this is... Uh, Steve Blank wrote for uh, for Steps to the Epiphany, yeah. and then Eric Reese wrote Lean Startup, and everyone was like, "Oh, that's kind of like Steve Blank's original idea." And it's like it's a completely different work. And then you have books that came after that, like the book Traction, oh, where yeah. and then those two guys, Steve Blank and the author of Traction, which I forget his name off the top of my head, Gabriel Weinstein, yeah. yeah, they end up like getting on a podcast or like a live stream and talking about how their books, how he picked up where the other left off. Same thing with. Um, Jeffrey Moore crossing the chasm and now you have um Bruce Cleveland is writing I forget oh traction gap it's mm-hmm. like th- those sort of things is like that's great write an extension like go into that stuff because it's a starting point that you don't know where you're going to finish yeah and another thing that creatives can fall into a trap with is thinking that their new thing or whatever they're doing has to be like the the panacea for everyone like it has to solve everyone's problems it has to be you know the epitome of like accomplishment in a particular like industry or vertical or something like that and i think that like letting off the pressure so going along with what yen said is it's okay to have something that excuse me just advances the conversation a little bit or helps move the needle in a small way or just inspires the one or two people that first encounter that that's completely fine um it's so because the majority of things that we're encountering on a daily basis were not made by one person they were made by dozens of people typically with a large budget and whether it's like a a feature movie or anything like that these budgets are absolutely massive so to think that as a single solo creator who might be out on your own that you have to achieve what a team of 24 people with a $30 million budget has achieved is just ridiculous. And it's yeah. not, if that is the way you're comparing yourself, it's stupid. That's and you, a great, and you shouldn't do it. Man, that's you a great need, point. Yeah, you need to compare. You need to judge your work with uncompromising sincerity. I'm paraphrasing some author. I'll steal it. I don't care. <laughs> um, but no, I'm, I'm trying to paraphrase it, make it better. Um, but the point there is if you are judging your work with against other work and you're not factoring in all the variables, okay, this author has an agent and you're not reading the acknowledgement sections where they thank 40 people. Yeah, that 40 were, human beings, that uh, were half per- of which are editors. Yes. And like, so imagine what your work could be with the help of everyone there. It doesn't mean that where you work at now that you deserve it or that you're going to be able to get access to all these people, but it does mean that you can start to reverse engineer the process. And that can be debilitating because you might discover that okay, I am years and years away from ever getting a, an editor of this quality to to work with me. Or yeah. if I want to hire them on my own and to edit my book, it's going to cost twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000. It might. And, but if you don't look at all those details though, you know, it's just a question of, do you want to bury your head in, in the sand or do you want to uh, take the red pill and see how far the rabbit hole goes type thing. And so Habib said that he's trying to write a book, an autobiography, but he has a hard time waking up early in the morning because that's when he's m- more inspired. Habib, just record it. Yeah, just get it, get out the audio recorder and tell the story of your life and get it transcribed later. Um, if you commute or anything like that, that's a great time to record it. Uh, if there are any family members around, maybe they want to get in. I'm sure that they would love to create like a, a family uh, autobiography or help you tell your story. Maybe if you have if you have an iPhone, then it's uh, voice memos is a really good tool. And if you have an Android, it is I want to say like titanium. Anyways, there's a yeah. free 
plugin that you can get for your phone. That's a really good voice recorder or or hire someone to dictate to. So that's something else that um, people can hear that and be like, oh, that's that's decadent type thing. Or that's like over the top. Like I'm not going to have somebody uh, take dictation or anything. That's how a lot of the best books were were written. So Marcel Prost wrote a uh, remembrance of things, things lost, or I'm probably butchering the name and how to pronunciate or pronounce the, uh, the author's name. But anyways, it's a famous enduring book. And he basically dictated that from his bed and Dostoevsky dictated all of his books and he was dictating those books. He couldn't write, he couldn't make himself write because he was such a procrastinator and everything. That's so crazy. For, like, first of all, if you struggle with that, forgive yourself because the best in the, like the best of the best struggled with that in a massive way. So Dostoevsky is, uh, he's boozing too much. He's drinking. He's thinking about like killing people and turning that into like one of his most, his famous books. Like he's, he's not like, he's not on the straight and narrow, let's say. Yeah. And he's still finding ways to create. He's deeply in debt. So he's taking his book advance and basically gambling it and then getting 30 days behind and other people like, so he gets a, another loan from a loan shark. And then he's able to hire this uh, secretary that he's having an affair with, but somehow he manages to dictate this new book called The Gambler, which is literally about his, it's a story about his, like exactly what he's doing. It's (laughs) it's a great hit. And so I think that, you know, remembering that these works of art and these creations are not created in, you know, waking up early in the morning, getting my tea, just calming down for a few minutes, meditating, I'm going to meditate for 30 minutes. If I don't meditate for 30 minutes, I'm not going to create. I'm not going to write. No. Yeah. (laughs) It's okay. If the loan shark's after you, if you're dictating to someone who you're not sure how to pay, like get wild with it. Like, but, but do the things you're going to have to do the things in the real world to, to move the project forward and And, and move you forward. And someone, we don't advocate gambling or loan sharks. Yeah. But, but no, it's a really good point that it's like, there's something like that where there's always a solution to those answers. Yeah. And if the answer is, there always is, there is always a solution. And if it's like, oh, I can't find someone who's going to list, who's going to dictate. It's like, maybe there's someone who needs their lawn yeah. mode. And it's and, like, and just, you could, but just, but just try it too. Don't believe what Ian's saying. Don't believe what I'm saying. Just yeah. try Just try it yep. for yourself. And, uh, you know, try the, the, the approach of saying nobody will take dictation for me. I don't have the cash. I don't have the money. Well, have you asked anyone yet? Have you, cause you might find that if you ask 12 people, you're going to get some, somebody's going to say yes. Yeah. Somebody is going to be so curious by the fact that you're actually going to like, you're going to dictate to me and I'm going to write it down about what? Oh, it's a book I'm writing. Well, what's the book about? Like they're going to start asking questions. And that is a fascinating thing to be involved with. Yeah. Imagine spending your weekend um, watching Netflix or just like staying around, not doing much of anything. Or you get a text message from a friend that is like, Hey, I just went through this traumatic experience and I want to put it to paper to kind of like, you know, figure out what it meant, process it. I want it to be a part of something. I don't know where this creation is going to go, but it's a story I need to tell. I just have to get it out there. That is way more interesting. And I guarantee your friends want to get a text that asks for that type of help on a creative project instead of, Hey, you want to go see this movie? Yeah, thing. I totally agree. So Josh Rutherford said, uh, how do you digest criticism now that you have experience versus when you first started writing? So the first thing I do is get angry and defensive. And we then get after crushed <laughs> in the message boards, bro, I can't tell you. No, actually, we have really we have I'm not amazing fans, but we do have the, the occasional person who's like out of left field. Um, I mean, you but can, I th- yeah, I think that being uh, angry and defensive is, is fine. I think it's great, actually. I think that getting that out of the way is really, really healthy because so many people will take, they'll they'll be polite in the immediate circumstance and they won't try to defend their idea or anything. And then they'll just get passive aggressive and they'll just, they'll hold that over you for a long period of time. The fact that you are nice enough to provide honest feedback. It might be flawed. It might be wrong. Who's your boy? Uh, oh, Philip K. Dick. Uh, yeah. Not, well, not literally your boy, but another person, horrible writer, amazing yeah. a brilliant mind amazing brilliant mind but, but a horrible, horrible, horrible writer so like think of how many times that dude got crushed by his editors for like this is really bad this writing. is garbage yeah so many of the people that he was working with would just be like this is this is trash like you're you're not you you can't be like a professional writer dude, but he didn't thought, went right back to the amphetamines and turned out the next one yeah and that's the thing dude just back at it uh yeah people thought that like when Star Wars, when they were working on it, that this was this idiotic space opera. Space it's, opera. Cor- it's so corny. They were so embarrassed to work on the project. Like the Lucas doing his screenplay, like they were just like 
oh my, this guy made a car movie before. He's like, he made a car movie, American Graffiti. Uh, he made some weird sci-fi movie, TX, THX 183 or whatever it was. That's kind of what people were saying about working with Lucas on the project. They weren't like, oh, rah, rah, this is incredible. I can't believe you got the budget. It was like, why are you choosing unknown actors? Like, does yeah. this does this director realize he's picking people? He has the budget for more and he's using all of that budget on this new thing called special effects. He wants like it to be on lighting instead of the actors. Like, are you, are you dumb? Um, yeah, so just take those... Um the the criticism will always be there. What was the uh this is another good one. Who said this? You'll know once I say it. But that um all the good books on um on Amazon have three and a half stars because some people don't like them. Who yeah. who said that? Um I, I think that's uh, so when I filter books, I I Maybe well, it's you. I, yeah, I'm not afraid of you. <laughs> I'm not afraid of three star books. And some of the the most enduring books and like so a lot of the things that are on my bookshelf right now are like angry reviews, two stars, three stars. Um, but that's okay. You can't expect a casual, like books aren't for everyone. Yeah. Like it's not, it's so silly that a book would have 10,000 reviews from just 10,000 random people who came across it. And that that would be a measurement of how good the book is for you. So personalized recommendations aren't yet, you know, they're pretty, pretty new to say the least. I would say they don't even really exist. So yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't have to be great. Like it can be one star, uh, it can be one star things. And I think that so many people are, they have a very narrow idea of their reputation. And I say so many people like myself included, like I lived under this like farce for years and years where it's like your reputation is so fragile that if you were to put out a book that was like half baked or kind of nonsensical, it would destroy it. And there are, uh, different people that are saying like, oh, you know, the best, um, a book is like a real liability because what if somebody sees that? And if it's like not the best thing in the world, it's a liability and you shouldn't do it. And I just don't, I just don't believe that at all. I think you should have the more creative projects out there that you are embarrassed about the better because uh, another like behind the scenes thing that the best creators in the world that I've met any ways that all will share behind the scenes, but they will not bother trying to explain to everyone because everyone else will kind of like either crush you or they don't want to hear this they hate their work they hate all of it they hate it when it's done they hate it when they see it in the movie theater it doesn't matter it's never going to be good enough but it is good enough for them to get through it and then maybe there's like that one thing that they're proud of that they can like keep personally but in general there's going to be a lot of it that, that you just hate but through that creative action you're going to beat resistance feel better get that feeling that comes from after creating and you'll be able to do the next, you'll have enough strength to do the next thing. So Donald Sutherland, who played uh, President Snow and has played a bunch of famous villains and all that stuff, he's never once watched one of his movies. There he's just go. like, That's a great he's like, I did a, I did a great job. I loved all of those characters and I brought them to life. I don't need to see them on screen. Yeah. Um, and he was, I think something else too, when you, because you told me about yeah. that before. And it was like, he didn't want to like ruin the experience of, because he had gone through the creative process of the movie and the whole idea of the journey being the reward is is so true. And the more that you can make the journey, the reward for you and feel good about the creative process and make that the joy, the more you're going to have the right long-term mindset to accomplish whatever it is you want to accomplish. Agreed. So Kathleen said, uh, one of her problems is so many notes and ideas and not being organized and then getting totally overwhelmed. Even my outline is a nightmare. Kathleen. I'm right there with you. We have I have notes a, all over. We the have place. a certifiable redwood forest. If we had print, if we print out all of the Google Docs at the mission, <laughs> we have hundreds of shows that we've outlined. We have, and they're, they're coming down the pipe. But it's like we have so much stuff in the digital, in the in the interwebs. Yeah, in the mission's uh, Google Drive. I cannot even tell. Notebooks you. full of it. But that's we, what we you roll need. back. Yeah. Hold on, quick quick thing on this. Kathleen, we roll back stories that were like, man, I'd love to do a story on this person. And we'll go back and like six months ago, we wrote like half of it already and then we stopped or whatever it is or did an outline. Like like you have to find your way through the chaos and it's fine. I think it's just par for the course. I think it's a great credential. So having all of that around is proof of work. It doesn't mean that like the the work or whatever project you choose to really focus in on is going to be perfect. Um, But that the fact that you have, you're surrounded by, uh, those notes and ideas and you're not organized, great. 
that is the chaos stage of creation where you need to generate all of those ideas. And you're already well, well along the path of creating something good is just getting all of those things out there. Um, the one example from nature that we've talked about before is nature is a ruthless monster. And it, for every thousand things it creates, it destroys 999 of them. 99.9% of species go extinct. So you have to have the mindset that I'm going to write a thousand sentences and one is going to be good. Uh, but what if that sentence is, or that single thing or that um, single step is like potentially immortal? Because that's what you're that's what you're going for. And that's what the upside is. And I think that aspiring to create things that can outlive and outlast you and that can combine with other creative works or other ideas, um, that's, that's really exciting. So however you can channel those energies into one creative project or one outline that you get to completion, uh, I think the better, but generally like that's the prerequisite is having all that stuff. And another thing too, there is put a, put a placeholder and Kathleen, you said, it's okay to write something that advances the conversation in some way is okay. Like just put a placeholder. Like if you can't think of a name of a character, just put placeholder. That's a great, if you can't think of a city that they should be from, put a placeholder, like go back, like you can go, you could get to the nth, the 12th hour of your book or the 23rd hour of writing your book and have placeholders for every single city and every single person's name. If you suck at thinking up names and then just go on Reddit and like post like, Hey, somebody make up a name. That's what editors are for. That's what your, your team is. You have to find those people who can contribute in that way because yeah, one of my favorite writers would just use generic names for all of his characters. And I found too, as we start to get more into fiction, that's the way you can speed through fiction is you just leave. It's the same thing in business. Like you don't have to pin down a name for each thing. People get hung up as like, oh, I have to have the perfect name or the perfect brand or the perfect this or that. No, there's tons of work that you can do around those ideas to just you know keep moving forward. And as long as you can advance and move forward and not let the thing that you're creating stagnate, that's a really, really exciting thing. Well, a really quick, cool thing on that. So the old website, Bill Simmons' old website, Grantland, he hated the name Grantland, and one of his uh, one of the execs ended up chose, cho- choosing it. And everybody, it's like was like loved by everybody. Yeah. And then it's like in retrospect, it's like now this like cult phenomenon about like the whole Grantland thing. And that was and, a major st- turning point in his career. Where yeah, yeah. it was huge, right? And then yeah. so with the Ringer, they had this huge whiteboard of all these different names, and it was the ultimate like. Have you ever uh, seen people who who name their kids, or they're just like, I don't want to name my kid uh, anything that of any of the a holes that I've met in my life. <laughs> so you're really just crossing names off. You're just putting names on paper, and then being like, Oh man, I hated you know Blake in high school, yeah. or I whatever yeah. it is. Um, but that's what they did with the ringer. Is like the ringer was the one that like had the domains that they wanted, and it was like good enough. But like just think of like all the work that goes into creating a company. And then it's like, to get the name, it's like, we're just crossing stuff off a list. But yeah. like It's like certain decisions. There are so many decisions that if you give yourself decision fatigue with expending the same amount of mental effort on every single one, you're never going to have the energy required to get the thing to the next stage. And the next stage might be an editor taking it seriously enough. The next stage might be getting somebody to take your dictation down and write it down or whatever the case is. Um, but so, yeah, just figure out how to cut corners. And this is where, you know, we've been indoctrinated to think that any type of laziness or figuring out how to get around work is a bad thing. It's a great thing. It's how new technologies get created. Uh, is So embrace that laziness and don't beat yourself up over trying to figure out easier ways to do things. You will need to conspire and figure out every single easier way to do something if you're going to get create. Yeah, what you want to create. So Thomas... Uh- Lewandowski says, hey guys, to fight resistance, you use uh, on a daily basis the five-second technique, the Pomodoro technique, or any other quick fix to try to get in the zone one way or the other. Thanks for your work. French love from Australia. Right back at you, Thomas. Thanks for the comment. Um, So I think, so I would ask which ones that you just mentioned or which techniques here have you used and what are you seeing uh, results with? And I I would go with that. And if you haven't tried any of them yet, maybe try one or two or, or all of them. Um, I would say one of the ones for me is uh, taking a shower because taking a shower is like the ultimate. It's like, first of all, it's like physically like cleansing yourself, right? Yeah. So there's that, but also you're sitting in there by yourself for whatever, three minutes, five minutes, whatever it is. 
and you just have to sit there and think and there's nothing else that you can do and they're, you know, whatever. So you just kind of have to let your mind wander a little bit. And then when you come out, you're like refreshed, good to go. It's a hot day, take a cold shower, vice versa. And then you're like, hey, I'm ready to go, reset. There you go. And so we have a couple more questions here. Um, Some folks submitted questions beforehand. So I'm going to, let's jump into some of these. And for everybody out there listening, if you want to have a specific question, uh, again, the more specific you can get with the question, with the challenge you're facing, the more tactical we can get in our answer or our challenge back to you. Yeah. So, okay. So here's the uh, first question that comes from page 36 of the war of art where Pressfield says, uh, the truly free individual is free only to the extent of his or her own self mastery. What are your comments on this? I think that's that's a great way of looking at it. Just like everything, you have to think about, okay, what does that phrase mean for me? Does that phrase empower me? Does it disempower me? If I believe that, would that help me create? Or if I could believe that, would that help me create? And then exploring if it does, if that type of philosophy does aid you in that. I think that um, you know becoming more free. So that here, here's something else that's really challenging. Pressfield proposes in the book that um, freedom might not be something that humans are um, well adapted to. Because when you say freedom, it's like, well, what what do you mean? Do you mean uh, freedom from violence and unfair coercion? Or do you mean complete freedom? So like, do you need unlimited resources? Like, what exactly are you saying? Because a lot of people just throw that word around uh, pretty carelessly. And ultimately, we're not completely free. We have to rely on each other. We have a society where, you know, we're all, we specialize in a lot of different ways. So we have to, yeah, work together and collaborate together. And, but generally self-mastery is, is a really good thing. Yes. The more you can make yourself do the things you don't want to do, uh, the more you can procrastinate and, you know, use procrastination to help you decide what projects are really motivating, really inspiring for you. Um, I think the better, but the more you can explore what self-mastery means to you, the, uh, the better. Um, hi, Emily, by the way, who just joined. Uh, Angela, I have a great quote for you. Um, so you said a lot of mental fear stops me from trying new things. Here's a quote directly from the book. I'll post in the, in the group chat. Fear is good. Like self-doubt, fear is an indicator. Fear tells us what we have to do. Remember our rule of thumb. The more scared we are of a work or calling, the more sure we can be that we have to do it. Like how sweet is that? It's like, yep. oh, I'm afraid of something. That means I definitely got to do it. Yes. And so this is really fun because a lot of the topics that we're talking about here require a mind and a mindset where you're able to entertain both sides of an argument or a concept. Um, so it really requires the ability to explore opposing ideas and to find the uh, the union of opposites or the middle path between two polarizing concepts and, and figuring out like the right balance there. So next next question here. Um, what do you think about timetables and deadlines? Are they a positive push or a deadly drag to creativity? This question is from my mom. Shout out to my mom. Shout out to Cynthia. Thank you for asking us. And uh, again, something to experiment with. But I think that timelines and deadlines are a very, very positive push. They're not going to feel good when you're exploring them, when you're committing to them. Uh, but you need as many forcing functions and as many creative constraints uh, and things to help you get across the finish line. Uh, so I think that timelines and deadlines are a must, but I also love Douglas Adams when he says, uh, I love the sound that deadlines make when they go whooshing by. So. <laughs> um, I thought you man, I thought you were going to say the opposite. I thought you were going to say that screw deadlines. Um, um, I mean, I think that's, that sometimes that's what you do have to say eventually. But yeah, ultimately to finish something, you need a deadline that you come up against and you can still have things and use tools and still hate them. They can still feel really, really bad. Um, but in many ways, deadlines are just a necessary evil of getting, you know, getting things done. And the great thing about deadlines too is that when you're a professional, you're going to have them anyways. Yeah. Like one of the things that I think in working on professional creative projects that has been the most mind-blowing to me 
from listening to directors and especially like in the movie industry where it's just, just so expensive. Like it's just so expensive to make a movie. Yeah. Uh, there's just so many people involved in moving parts where you have directors who are creating like some of your favorite shows on TV that are saying things like, my whole budget is the size of one episode of The Crown. And you're like, what? Like, is that really real? But so you start to realize like the best creators in the world have had, hey, you got to shoot this, you know, nor if if this was Spielberg, you'd have, you know, you'd have a six week shoot. You got two. Yeah. Like things like that. And um, and just embracing it when you don't have a choice, when you're not surrounded by a luxury of options, take the offer that is in front of you. I think that's like is so uh, of course, it's not the best terms. Of course, it's not something that, you know, you want as your enduring legacy. But if you can get started with the work that you don't want as your enduring legacy, I think it puts you closer to a place where you can have a legacy of creative work that you can be proud of. Um, also, uh, okay. I just learned through the Facebook message that just came at me. If you just hit the share button, share now with friends, that your friends who might be interested in this uh, topic can also <laughs> learn all of this. So, you know, if you're, feeling, uh, if you're feeling frisky, go ahead and hit the share with friends button. Definitely. Yeah. So if you can share these live streams, it will help us do more, do more book clubs and uh, I really would like to get to a cadence where we're doing one every two weeks because there are so many books that internally we're going to read um, that I think that chipping away at them with the help of the book club would be a great. Yeah. With the help of the book club. A great idea. We need the whole the whole squad. We do. Um, so next uh, next question here. So Pressfield says that in beating resistance, that the number of pages written, uh, that it's not the number of pages written or the quality that matters as much as overcoming resistance. Uh, is that how you see it, too? When do you start to count or consider quality and quantity? Um, so I would only start counting and considering quality and quantity uh, when there is a specific reason for, you know, using them as a, a metric of like accomplishment or anything like that. So I wouldn't I wouldn't worry about using them unless there you had a specific reason. Um, but if you don't have a reason and you need a reason to do your creative work, then sure, yeah, set a word count. Explore how it works when you set a word count of 500 words a day. How does that work versus um, 500 publishable words. And then maybe try, yeah, just experiment with uh, the two of those there. Who was it who said that, uh, sorry for this letter being so long. I didn't have enough time, time to write, to write a shorter one. <laughs> I don't remember, but I, yeah, I love that example too. It's, uh, yeah, it's another good reminder that it's, it's really, really hard to polish things and cut off the half of it that isn't going to make the cut. I have a great comment for you. From our very own Brian Searing. Brian, what's up? I break down the goals vision for where I'm heading in small steps. Just try to work on it every day. Yep. Break Brian, it apart into manageable chunks. And if, uh, if you need some away. tips, just talk to Brian. He's the man. He is. So, okay. So I got one more question here. And I think this, okay, this is a great question. And this illustrates a, uh, a really important point. Um, and then, so yeah, anybody that's listening, if you have any more questions, please leave them in the comments of the live stream. We'll try to get to like one or two more before we call it quits. Um, here's the last one I'm going to read here. So Pressfield believes that we come into the world with a specific destiny, job, calling, profession, et cetera, to live out. What does this mean in light of the 10,000 uh, hours of practice rule that says we can be anything if we put in enough quality practice time in? Um, so, so basically that's like the 10,000 hours kind of ideas, like quality practice time but so is the question there kind of like if you if you spend 10,000 hours doing quality creative writing are you going to be a good writer is that kind of like distilled yeah I, I think that's like that's a good way of looking at it so let's it's kind of like a two-part question so let's um it's important to examine the premise of any question so Pressfield might believe that and maybe maybe he does I'm not sure how he would articulate that. Um, I think that any type of fatalistic thing where you believe that things are already preordained, that there is a specific calling, a destiny, a job or a profession is uh, toxic. You should avoid that like the plague. That is a leftover. So we get into important truth. I believe that few people would agree with me on. (laughs) Uh, uh It's a, okay, I'll just say it. So something worse than communism happened in America. And what, what do I mean by that? I mean that we have this weird world where adults typically watch children for any demonstrations of ability, and then they start suggesting to that child that they should be that thing forever. Oh, you'll be this. You'll be that. And if you show any interest 
in creating or art, people try to peg that to a profession, a job, a calling, or anything like that. That can be helpful sometimes, but I think that a lot of ways and a lot of times it gets to be really, really overbearing where now we're entering a new age of work and maybe even moving towards a golden age where people don't have to work quite so hard and we can use things like machines and automation and technology for its its original purposes, its original intent, intent, which was to remove the work from the plate of humans of us. And the thing about this is like, Again, try it out, but if it doesn't serve you, don't believe it. And I think that it's really, really limiting to think of yourself as I need to have one profession. Yeah. It's like if you're a doctor or it's like, hey, I went to medical school and did all this sort of time. Or, uh, you know, if I'm, you know, six foot nine and I've been a doctor for my whole life, I'm never going to be. Oh, wait, no, that actually happened. (laughs) But like that's the, the Michael Crichton thing of just. He was doing one thing as a career and didn't even want anyone to know that he was an author. Yeah. Had for to use fear a pen. of retribution. Had to use a pen name because he was so terrified of getting booted out of that illustrious profession. And J.K. Rowling used a pen name because she wanted to publish non-Harry Potter stuff. Like After is, she was famous. Yeah. Like this is you get stovepipe act whether it's yes. actors or whether it's your whole life yeah. people will try to tell you that you are this or you've only done this before, so you can't do that in the future. And the more you can fight back, this is something, this is such a strong point. I think people need to protest their uniqueness, their uh, skills, and you need to defend that. Like you need to actively defend what it is you want to do, because if you don't, culture will completely box you into one specific thing. And it's, it's way easier for the people around you to just think of you as a one dimensional Android or robot. And it's like, you, you have to define yourself and figure out how to do that. And it's not, it's not easy. It's really, really hard. The children's books that I grew up reading, my mom would always read to me, um, were by Patricia Polacco and I'm, she's a Bay area from the Bay. Um, but she, I could be getting this slightly wrong, but I'm pretty sure she started writing like in her seventies or something like that and became like a famous children's author, like scholastic award winner, all that sort of stuff. Like, where are those stories and like where are you know it's just it's more of a testament to the fact that like your book is not yet written pardon the pun um until it is and that's your call to do that and you're Um, the author you're the final arbiter you can cut scenes you can cut leave leave things out you don't have to hold on to everything you don't have to if you were an accountant before and you're done with that and you're already way past that into different things you don't have to keep telling people that you were an accountant uh something else that gets people hung up is like where they went to school or if they didn't go to school because for some weird reason you pay money to go around your whole life advertising oh i'm an alma mater of this school well what if you weren't happy with that degree what if you weren't happy with the the past life that's okay you don't have to keep going around advertising that you know you can just cut that off and just move on to the next thing and define yourself in a new way um and so carla said if your taste buds change every seven years wouldn't your purpose or interest change at least every decade great point hell yeah you're, yes, you're exactly you're right. Exactly Carla. right, Carla. Your body is telling you uh, that you're changing. You're a different. Person. Also, shout out Eric, who just said howdy. What's up, Eric? What's up, Eric? Appreciate all the Twitter love. Um, so, second part of this question too that I, I do want to dive into is so what what does this mean in light of the ten thousand hours of practice rule? So, the ten thousand hours of practice rule was uh, coined by Malcolm Gladwell, and he's talking about very specific domains of sports and then performance art. So like piano and and things like that. Those are the type of things that he is analyzing. And those type of things are not very applicable to a lot of people because being a professional athlete or a professional musician uh, is quite limiting, especially when uh, maybe some people aren't going to like this, but especially when different types of technologies and tools and auto-tune and things like that can help get us to the level of expert at record time. So what people are missing when a lot of this news comes out about, oh, AI is taking over or AI is uh, beat these players in this uh, dead on arrival game or Big Blue beats these chess masters. What people miss is there's typically like a follow-up story where people who are real technologists will come out and they'll conduct a study where chess amateurs use rudimentary software to beat grandmasters and beat the AI. That is the real story here is that technology, if we choose to use it to our advantage to create and not to consume, we can empower ourselves like never before. So whether it's using Grammarly or Hemingway app or outsourcing comments to the net or finding someone 
Um, shout out to Shiro who does a lot of our transcriptions, yeah. finding somebody on the net to, to transcribe things. Like we can use technology and people and teams to do way, way more. So forget the 10,000 hour rule. You could become an expert in a thousand hours in 2000 hours. Um, and it's, yeah, it's just all about what you're willing to do and what tech are you willing to leverage? Sorry. I was going to say, I got one even better for you. No, one, I don't think I've ever heard that anyone say this. I'm so, this is good. So you can create the computer that beats the chess master. AIs can beat the whatever. You can create the computer that actually does it. You can write the program that ends up doing it. But the person, but what robots can't do is create a game of chess. They can't create checkers. They can't create football. So it's like humans created the actual games that the machines then have to play. Take that to the bank. I love it. And that is a great place to wrap up the book club. And thank you so much to everyone for listening, for these thoughtful questions and comments. We appreciate them. And we will be announcing the next book in the book club reading session here very soon. Yeah. Love you guys. Thank you. Hit us up at the Mission HQ if you need anything. Um, Eric said there's creativity and technology. That's exactly right. Love it. Awesome, everyone. See you next time. Oh, and check out the Mission Daily. That's where this uh, we'll we'll post this as a podcast episode. And we got great stuff coming next week. Ooh, and oh, and a sweet interview. Oh, we do. We have a really really good interview with the CEO of a publicly traded company to be named very shortly. Awesome. See you next time, everyone. See ya. Hey listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.